Hear the word of the Lord. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Mo Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Like a small seed, the kingdom of God can be hard to see. It's easy to miss until one day a mighty tree towers over a field. This is the story of the Bible, and it's our story too. Twenty years ago, a handful of teenagers and college students went looking for Jesus amongst broken people and broken places. Together, they found common ground and shared doubt, fears about the future, and a hunger for more. They planted a seed and our sojourn began. Some friends became a group, a group became a Bible study, and from that Bible study, Sojourn Church was born. We were in over our heads, but we had faith. The seed grew. Changed lives gave way to changed homes and neighborhoods. The young tree produced new seeds across our city and across our river. We are four churches, but still one sojourn. Four maturing churches, unique in our expressions, yet united in our mission. The seed became a tree. The tree has given birth to an orchard, and today it's spreading across our nation. Today we stand at a crossroads, grateful for what's behind us, wondering what's before us, looking to the ancient paths. But we know these things. We will stand on the truth of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to transform lives. We will honestly, humbly embody and proclaim the word of God in all the places that God has placed us. We are compelled by the beauty of God. Through beautiful art, beautiful spaces, and beautiful lives, we glimpse the face of God. As men and women from every color, class, and creed confess Jesus is Lord, the world, too, will see the beauty of God. And we join Jesus in his work of making all things new, filling our city with the goodness of God. We enter the world so filled with weeds and wild growth, and we transform it into a garden. Four churches, one sojourn. Distinct and unified, diverse and harmonious. The ancient paths of God, truth, beauty, goodness brought us here. Yet we still hunger for more. More revival, more renewal, more churches, more experiences of God and his power to transform lives. One sojourn, four churches, and the best is yet to come. 
Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Timothy, and I have one of the, the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. Let's pray together before we begin. God, we are not worthy to hear your words, and we are certainly not worthy, any of us, to speak your words. And yet, you call us to both. You give us your words to hear, and you ask us to proclaim them to others. We are not worthy of this task, but yet, through your power, you call us each to it. And you call us to this wonderful body of believers, this family that you've placed around us. And so, God, I ask that you would simply open our minds this day to the truths that you have, to the family you have placed around us in such a way that we seek the good of our neighborhood and of the nations. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, there are many ancient philosophers who had this idea that there are three things that every human being longs for, every human being yearns for, and they're truth and beauty and goodness. Now, we may disagree what is true, what is beautiful, and what is good, but the truth is that even if we disagree on that, all of us are seeking, all of us yearn and long for truth and beauty and goodness. And as believers in Jesus Christ, here's what we confess and here's what we believe. That truth and beauty and goodness are ultimately found in Jesus Christ. He is the truth. He is beautiful to behold. And it is through him and him alone that all goodness that exists in this world exists at all. Now these values of truth and beauty and goodness, they're the values we have for sojourn as a whole, believing that truth and beauty and goodness are found ultimately in Jesus Christ. For sojourn as a whole, these are our values. But over the past few months as pastors, and many of you have input in this as well, we have developed six values that are, that are kind of grounded in and tied to truth and beauty and goodness. And these six values are unique and distinct to Sojourn Midtown. They're based on what God is doing here. They're the things that have brought you here and the things that we believe will sustain us in the future. They're on this bookmark. Everybody hold up your bookmark if you've got one, all right? Now, this is just a magic, amazing bookmark. You look on one side, it says reach, build, send. That's what Pastor Jamal did last week. You look at that. That's what we do. You flip it over and it tells you who we are and what we value. And the two that we're going to look at today are biblical faithfulness and gospel centeredness. And both of those are tied back to this idea of truth, of truth. You see, even if you don't know it, all of us are looking for truth. And you may be thinking, I'm not really looking for truth that much. I don't find myself thinking about that that much. But you think about it, even if your job, suppose that your job is in the medical profession in some way, you're, you're a doctor or a nurse or something like that. Part of what you're doing is looking for truth. You're seeking what is it that is wrong with this person and what is the truth about it, what is the reality about it that we can heal them. 
If your job is fixing widgets on a website, that's your job. That's what you do all day. You're looking for the truth about why this conflicts with that and it isn't working on this particular website. If you are a parent, you are always looking for truth because children lie, okay? We all know that. If you're honest about it, we all know that children lie and the thing that they never told you and what to expect when you're expecting is to expect that the number one task you would have as a parent is being a good interrogator, okay? That's what you've got to do. You've got to be able to interrogate the children. That's why it's great to have a lot of children because somebody's going to squeal on the others. And so you can have a lot of kids, somebody's going to squeal, and you can find out the truth at that point. But you're looking for truth. If you're a parent, there are times you are seeking truth. All of us are looking for truth, even if we don't know it. And for us at Sojourn, what we have taken our stand on is the truth that we find, that the, the truth is found in biblical faithfulness and gospel-centeredness. What we're saying in that when we say we're going to be biblically faithful, what we are saying is in this book, the Bible, we believe that it tells the truth about God and about ourselves, and because of that, we will be submitted to and shaped by the scriptures. And this is actually a great week to celebrate that and to consider biblical faithfulness. Because on this very week in, in 1521, so 1521, this week, Martin Luther stood before the religious leaders of his day and the Holy Roman Emperor. And Martin Luther had made the radical declaration that what we were bound by and what it was that we were to be faithful to as the people of God was not church tradition, but rather scripture and scripture alone. And he was brought before the Holy Roman Emperor, before the church leaders of his day, and they asked him, will you recant what you have said? And his first response was, give me a day to think about it. And so he came back the next day. And when he came back the next day, what he declared to them was this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures and my conscience is captive to the word of God. So help me God. That's what he says. And that's what we say at Sojourn. Our consciences are captive to the word of God. We do not have the right or the capacity to go make up truth or fabricate truth on our own. We don't have the capacity or the right to be able to say, I will just develop my own truth and I will live by my truth. We believe that truth is found in the Bible and we are caught captive to that. Now, we have to recognize that's not some quirk that is strange to sojourn. Have this idea of having a standard of truth that you are living by. Every single person has some standard of truth they're living by. If somebody says, I just want to live by what makes me feel good or what's good for me, your standard is self. There are other people who choose that their standard is going to be science for all the decisions they make in their life. Some, everybody has some standard by which they are choosing truth. The question is not whether you will have a standard by which you are choosing truth, but it's rather whether the standard you choose tells the truth about you and about your world. And what we believe as believers in Jesus Christ is the truth about God, about ourselves, about our world is reflected and found in the scriptures. And that's why week by week, we do not give you a weekly pep talk to make you feel better about your life. If, you, if there's something that would belong and make sense on a cat poster, it's not going to be part of our sermon, okay? 
that's not going to work because that's not what we're about is simply giving you inspiring little tidbits for your life. What you are going to get week by week at Sojourn is an exposition of the word of God. And the reason for that is we want to confront you with the truth of God's word. And sometimes you will be comforted. Sometimes you will be challenged. But what we want ultimately is for you to be changed by the truth. That's what we want. That's our goal. It's for you to be transformed, to be changed by the truth of God. And so we will be biblically faithful, but we will also be gospel-centered. Now, what that reminds us of is that the Bible is a story that has a particular center or a particular focus, and that focus, that center, is the gospel. The Bible is not a cookbook. Newsflash, I know, that's confusing. The Bible is not a cookbook, and here's what I mean by that. In a cookbook, you can go through and you can find the recipe you want and you can pull it out. There's no context around it. There's no storyline that ties all the recipes together. You take what what appeals to you, you cook that, and you don't have to deal with the rest of the cookbook. Now, when it comes to cookbooks, I like that. I like it because I like to cook and I cook a lot. And because a, a, a cookbook is set up that way, then I can go to the beef wellington or I can go to the honey glazed pork and I can skip the asparagus and the artichokes and the Brussels sprouts. I can skip all those. Thank you, Jesus, because a cookbook is set up that way. But the Bible is not a cookbook. The Bible is not a book where you can choose what you want out of it and say, I will take that and I will ignore the rest. I will take what is appealing to me and palatable to me and put aside the rest. The Bible is not a cookbook. It's a story that is all tied together and it has a center and that center is the gospel. And the word gospel simply means good news. And what we mean when we are speaking of the gospel is the proclamation of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus by which God is establishing his kingdom in the world and reconciling his people to himself. It is that we enter into God's kingdom through God's cross by God's grace. That's the center. That is the center. And everything in the entire Old Testament, the laws, the judges, the prophets, all of that, the kings and the kingdoms, was all about the preservation and the preparation of a people through whom God would bring Jesus into the world. That's why we don't live by those laws in the Old Testament because it was part of a bigger story with a center and the center is the gospel. And everything we see in the New Testament is a celebration and an application of this gospel and the sojourn. The gospel is to form and to fuel everything we do. Nothing makes sense apart from the life, the sacrifice, and the resurrection of Jesus. It is to shape how we live, how we love, how we lead, how we read the Bible, and it is the gospel that tells us who we are. And if you are a child of God, it tells you you are a son, you are a daughter of God, brought together into this family for his glory. That is gospel-centeredness. And in Luke 24, we see both biblical faithfulness and gospel-centeredness at work in the life of Jesus. And it all begins on a dusty path between Jerusalem and Emmaus on a spring afternoon almost 2,000 years ago. Let's set the scene and think about this. There are two disciples. It seems like they might be a husband and wife walking from Jerusalem back to Emmaus. And it's been a rough weekend. 
Because the one that they thought would be the victor over the, all the things that were, that were arrayed against them, a victor on behalf of God's people, the one they thought was the victor turned out to be the victim. And he was crucified on that Friday. And not only was he crucified on that Friday in this crushing defeat, but that morning they started getting reports from people that they trusted. And these people that they trusted said they had had visions of angels. They had been to the tomb and the tomb was empty. And these two were walking home now confused. And it seems to hint that they're disputing and disagreeing with one another. Now, the way I imagine it is, the, the wife is saying to her husband Cleophas, I think we ought to listen to those women. I think that they, they're onto something. I don't think that they're, they're making this up. I don't think they found the wrong tomb. And he's like, no, I don't think they make any sense. Coming back from the dead, what are we talking about here? And so they're arguing about this back and forth and back and forth. And suddenly Jesus walks up beside them, but they don't know it's him. Now here's how I kind of envision that, you know, when you've got your kids and you're disciplining your child and somebody suddenly shows up, okay, at that point, and you're like, I'm just gonna swoop your arms. Oh, oh, hi, how are you doing? Ah, oh, things are going great with our family. How's your family? You know, you're done. Don't look at me that way. You've done it too. I've done it. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done this with our children or in our discussions. That's kind of what happens right here. They're walking along arguing about this, and suddenly there's somebody else. Oh, hi, how are you doing? But Jesus totally calls their bluff. He just says, what are you, what are you arguing about? And he knows. He asks them, what are you arguing about? And they're like, we don't know what to do. We've heard these stories that Jesus wasn't in the tomb and we don't know what to do. Now I want you to just pause for a moment and notice one thing here. They weren't expecting a resurrection. Okay, sometimes we get this idea that the people back then were just gullible and believed in things that we wouldn't believe in today. Maybe they just expected, but I've got a newsflash for you. In the first century, people stayed dead too. That's not a 21st century thing. When people died in the first century, they stayed dead. And they expected him to stay dead. Why? Because in their culture, in their experience, just as in ours, people stay dead. They don't expect it. None of them are saying, I just think this is going to happen. They're not expecting it. And Jesus says to them, after they explain this, he says, you ignorant, dull-hearted people. I love that. Jesus clearly missed the class on building his student self-esteem. You ignorant, dull-hearted people. That's the first century equivalent of, well, bless your hearts. That's what Jesus said. Bless your hearts. I just don't know what else to say to you. But why does Jesus say this? The reason he says that is because they did not believe what the Bible said. And he said, because of that, you are ignorant and dull-hearted. That's exactly what he says. You're so slow to believe what the scriptures said. And then he says, was it not necessary that what the Old Testament said, wasn't it necessary that that happened? Jesus was submitted to and shaped by the scriptures. Think about this. Jesus was not hesitant to correct people or contradict them. Jesus corrected his disciples. He corrected the top theologians of his day, but never once did Jesus ever correct or contradict the scriptures that he had. In fact, he quoted them constantly with absolute confidence. In fact, one time earlier in his ministry, he was in this dialogue, this discussion, and he says, haven't you read what God said in Matthew 22? And then he goes on and quotes from the book of Exodus. Do you see what he's saying there? That what the Bible says is what God says. 
that God is truth and the Bible comes from God, therefore it also is true. I love the way this uh, third, fourth century theologian, an African theologian named Athanasius put it. He says, it is the opinion of some that scriptures do not agree or the God who gave them is false, but there is no disagreement. The father who is truth cannot lie. We need to hear that in our day. There are people even who claim to be Christians who say that they are red-letter Christians. Some Bibles have the words of Jesus written in red. And say, I'm a red-letter Christian, which means I take what Jesus says in the red letters, but I ignore the rest or think maybe it's in error and we can reinterpret and rethink the rest. We just have to receive the red letters. But here's the problem. Jesus made clear in the red letters that he believed the black letters. He made it clear at that point, if you receive the red letters, you have to believe the black letters. You can't separate those. It stands or it falls together. Why? Because it is all about Jesus. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, I'm going to interpret for them the scriptures and the things about himself concerning himself in all the scriptures. Think about what Jesus is saying for a moment right there. This book that has been inspired by God for over a thousand years, the Old Testament that Jesus had, inspired by God by dozens of authors over more than a thousand years, he's saying, hey guys, it's all about me. Which would seem really arrogant. You're so vain, you probably think this book is about you. (laughs) Except that's exactly what he's claiming. What Jesus is trying to say to them is everything in the Bible points to Jesus. And that's what we believe about the Bible. That in the beginning, when those first humans stood naked beneath a tree, they sinned against God and they were exiled for their sins. That that points to Jesus, who would one day hang naked from a tree, exiled for the sins of others. When Abraham takes his son upon the hill to sacrifice his son and God gives a lamb at the last moment and that ram becomes a substitute for his son, it points forward to the time when God the Father will allow his son to be taken up a hill and God will provide no substitute for his son because there is no substitute for what Jesus is about to do. When David goes into the valley and represents his people and goes into battle against Goliath and defeats him and cuts off his head, that it points to the time when Jesus will go into battle against Satan and will break the head of Satan's power and he will represent his people in that. When Daniel intercedes for his people and he is accused, he is brought up on a sham trial and he faces certain death being put into the, into the cave with a stone rolled over it with a lion who will assure his death. It points forward to Jesus who intercedes for his people one night and that very night is brought up on a trial and he dies and he put in a cave and a stone is rolled over the door and yet when that stone is rolled back, he is not there. All of it, the whole Old Testament leans with eager expectancy towards Jesus and Jesus only. The Bible is not about you. It's not about what you get out of it. The Bible is about Jesus. And we are formed and fueled by this message. And to claim this is all about me is arrogant. Unless you're the type of guy who walks out of tombs alive. And then it's not arrogant at all. But look how those who had followed Jesus responded to this news. Look at verse 28 of chapter 24. They came near the village where they were going in Jesus. He plays it cool. He gives the impression he's going on further. 
He knows what's going to happen. He's how he has a plan. But he's, he's just giving them this so that they will urge him and they do stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Didn't our hearts burn, they say. Now, this is an intentional contrast in this text because just a few verses earlier, Jesus had said, you have dull hearts, and now it says you have burning hearts. They say, didn't our hearts burn within us? What made the difference? What made the difference is they glimpsed Jesus at the center of the scriptures. They saw that it was all about him, and it says their hearts burned within them. This isn't heartburn like too many onions on your pizza. Heartburn, that's not what this is talking about. It is that surge of joy that you feel when you see how the story is all coming together in a manner that you never expected. It's like in that movie that you're watching that has a twist at the end and the twist takes you by surprise and then you realize the entire movie was setting you up for that twist at the very end. You know, M. Night Shyamalan, every time I say his name, I think I'm gonna speak in tongues and need an interpreter at that point. M. Night Shyamalan, he does the movie The Sixth Sense and some other movies and the movie that he does, at the very end, they almost always have this twist where you realize that the whole movie was leading up to a point you did not expect, but it was telling you that the whole time. Here's, that's what they're feeling right here. That surge of joy at that point when they realized that whole Old Testament was all leading up to Jesus and they didn't know it. They hadn't recognized it. So our hearts are burning within us, they said. And burning hearts give a burning passion to tell others. They can't keep it to themselves. When you've got a burning heart experience with Jesus, you can't keep it to yourself. It's got to spill over to others. And look at what they do. We find it in verse 30, 33. It says in verse 33, that very hour, think about it, what time of the day is it right now? It's evening, they've already said. They are setting out in the dark to make it from Emmaus to Jerusalem. A multi-mile trip that they're trying to make in the dark. They are so excited about it that they are returning to Jerusalem in the dark. And it says they found the 11 and those with them gathered together who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they're telling this, Jesus shows up. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. <laughs> Woo! Imagine that. You're sitting there at the table with everybody and ever so suddenly he is there, which is probably why he says immediately after, peace be with you, because they weren't feeling a lot of peace at this moment. They were startled, it says in verse 37, and terrified, you think, and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why did doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands. And my feet, as I myself, touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? 
I love that. Give me the thing here to eat. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. There's a beautiful authenticity to this story. If you're going to make something up, the Messiah is not going to show up and get some leftover Long John Silvers when he gets there. That's just not going to be the way you make the story up. This is not going to be the way you fabricate something. But Jesus shows up and says, do you have anything to eat? And there's two reasons for that. One of them is he wants them to be very clear that this is a physical resurrection. This is not merely a spiritual resurrection, but a physical resurrection. But then on top of that, eating with people was a way of entering into fellowship with them. He has restored his fellowship with them and he eats with them. And we see here biblical faithfulness and gospel centeredness. Verse 44, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Biblical faithfulness. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he also said to them, this is what is written. And he spells out the gospel. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So this burning fire that took them all the way to Jerusalem, he says, that's not just going to take you to Jerusalem. It's going to take you to all the world. The nations, he says. Now, when we say nations, we often mean political boundaries, but that's not what he's saying here. It's every culture, every ethnicity. This is a gospel he gives them that delights in diversity. It delights in drawing together different people from different backgrounds where we can listen to one another and rejoice with one another. And this in their world was absolutely unheard of. You only gathered with people like you. You only gathered that way. But he says, this is going to be for all the nations, for all people groups, for all ethnicities, for all cultures and races. This is for all of us. And he gives them the scriptures and the gospel, and he sends them out to the neighborhoods and the nations. And they change the world. According to sociologists, by the end of the first century, there were probably somewhere around 7,000 Christians concentrated in urban areas and the Roman Empire. But by the end of the third century, Christians comprised, even during a time of persecution, close to half the people in the empire, millions. They went out and they changed the world. So what do we do with all of this? I wanna first talk to you if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Because if you're not a believer, you're hearing this and you think biblical faithfulness, why should I even believe the Bible is true? And if that's what you're saying, I like you. I really mean that with all sincerity, I like you. Because you're asking the right questions. And frankly, I would often rather hang out with, Christ, with, with atheists who think than Christians who don't. I want you to think about it. And it means you're thinking about it. And I, I just, I like that. But this matters really, really deeply to me because I remember going into college and I had believed in the Bible my whole life. And not just any Bible, the King James version of the Bible only my entire life. Uh, and been told all sorts of things about why that and that alone was true. And the moment I started stepping into my classes in Greek and in New Testament and in history, all the reasons I had been given for my faith just fell apart completely. I almost walked completely away from the faith. 
about the end of my first year of college. But I came back to it, and I want you to understand why. And it's that I believe the Bible is true because I believe that Jesus is alive. I really do. And I want you to understand that that is not something that's without evidence for it. And I want to walk through that really briefly. I, I would love to spend two or three hours on this, but let's just walk through it briefly. Often the way that we determine what happened historically is when there are multiple independent accounts of the same event. And especially if the people telling the story don't have anything to gain by what they're saying. And that's exactly what we find in the scriptures and actually in some cases outside of the scriptures. Then take a look at this on the screen. Just walk briefly through these things. We have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, before the gospels were most likely written, Paul writes this tradition that he has received when he was in Jerusalem, and it tells about the resurrection of Jesus on the third day with many witnesses. Mark, which is adapted in different ways in Matthew and Luke, raised on the third day Mary Magdalene as the first witness. John, written separately, is apparently from these an independent witness. Raised on the third day, Mary Magdalene is the first witness. If we want to throw it in, there's a second century document that there's a, a later copy of that also has resurrection on the third day, Mary Magdalene as the first witness. I want you to realize how radical it is for a woman to be the first witness to this. In a Jewish court of law, a woman could not testify at all. In a Roman court of law, there were very rare circumstances when it could happen. If you're going to make this up, you're not going to put a woman as witness number one. And yet they do. They do. They present a woman as witness number one. And not only do they have a woman as the first witness and on the third day and agree on these things, let's also add the fact that the disciples had nothing to gain from what they were proclaiming. Imagine Simon Peter says something to this effect. Guys, I got an idea. Let's solve this issue of Jesus having died by telling everybody he was raised from the dead. There's no money involved in it. There's no power. There's probable death. But let's tell anybody, everybody anyway, I'll go first. It doesn't make any sense. They had nothing to gain by telling this story. And yet, Peter, James, and as well as James, the relative of Jesus, and James, one of the followers of Jesus, those three for certain from evidences inside and outside the Bible, died for their faith. Died for it. And they would have known if it had been false. You might die for a lie, but you won't die for what you know is a lie. And they would have known if it was a lie. And when I was 18 years old, I could not get around that. And I still can't. I still can't get around that. And I still believe to this day that Jesus Christ turned a tomb into a weekend getaway. He checked in on Friday, he paid the bill, he walked out on Sunday alive and well, and when the stone had been rolled away, death itself had been evicted from the grave. That's what I believe. I believe that. And I choose to believe about the Bible what he believed about the Bible. He came back from the dead. I'll believe what he believed about the Bible. And what he believed about the Old Testament is that it's all true and it was all about himself. 
And the New Testament comes from the people who had witnessed him alive or their close associates were the people who wrote the New Testament. And many of them signed their testimony, so to speak, in blood. You have a different view? You die and come back from the dead, I'll hear it. I'll hear it. I'll listen to it. But until then, I'll take Jesus. I'll take Jesus. So what difference should this make in our lives? Being biblically faithful and gospel-centered. Well, for one thing, it means we need to be submitted to and shaped by the scriptures in everything we do. Submitted to and shaped by all of scripture. Not just part of it, but all of it. I'm going to challenge you with something. Biblical faithfulness is really easy if you only choose part of the Bible to be faithful to. And evangelicals have been bad about taking a few little snippets of Paul and looking at all of life and theology through those little snippets of Paul so that you end up with a salvation that is individual and it's all about an individual salvation and certain moral standards that are inconsistently applied. I don't want that. I want us to be faithful to all of the Bible. The prophets who call us to respond in the name of God and in faithfulness to him to poverty and injustice. I want us to read and look carefully at the calls in the, throughout the scriptures and especially in the gospels that Jesus is bringing a kingdom and that that kingdom, yes, it is a kingdom that is not of this world, but it is a kingdom that cares deeply about people's physical needs and their, where they are at. It's a gospel that brings people together in a way that is going to be out of step with both the people on the political right and the political left. It's going to be out of step with both if we're faithful to all of Scripture. And here's what I have to say to that about that. If we follow that path as a people, it's a hard future. I'm not going to lie about that. It's hard because you're out of step with the things that fit the way the world thinks. It's a hard future, but it is a good future, and it is one that is aimed at and focused on faithfulness to the God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture. It is that future. Secondly, live formed and fueled by the gospel. We often believe and confess that we are formed by the gospel, that is, that we become Christians by means of the gospel. That's great. But you don't recognize sometimes, and I don't recognize sometimes, we struggle to see that you need the gospel as much 20 years into your salvation as you did the moment you were saved. You never outgrow the gospel. I never will outgrow the gospel and not need the gospel anymore. That will never, ever happen. The death and the resurrection and the life of Jesus matters as much 20 or 30 years into being a Christian as it did on day number one. It matters every bit as much. See, when you're fighting against sin, the resurrection of Jesus matters deeply because it's the power of that resurrection that is at work in you that lets you fight against that sin. 
If you are suffering, you may feel that you're alone in that and the death of Jesus matters because he is joined with you in your suffering. If you are at a point where you feel like you are worthless and you cannot achieve what you need to achieve, the life of Jesus matters deeply because he already did all that pleases God in your place and on your behalf. All of it. Everything that God demands from us, he delivers for us in Jesus. Everything. Everything. And lastly, I simply want to encourage you to recover the wonder of studying God's word. It says their hearts burned within them when they heard and understood the scriptures. When was the last time you read the Bible and your heart burned within you? Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen every time you read the Bible, but if you're not looking for it, it's never going to happen. If you're not seeking it, it's never going to happen. When was the last time your heart was on fire as you realized the beauty and the power and the wonder of what God has done in his word and how he has fulfilled it in Christ and you have been invited to be part of all that God has done in Christ, in his word? When was the last time that set a fire in your soul where you loved it and your love of the scriptures made you love God more? Have a fire. And when you have that burning in your soul, do remember this. There are 150 million people in this world who do not have even one verse of scripture in a language they can understand. 150 million. While you and I have shelves that are stacked with Bibles. We need to remember that. Because remember that the burning hearts they had sent them to the nations, first to Jerusalem and then to the nations. And the burning heart you have as you read the Bible should send you to have a passion for the nations, a passion for the nations here around us, for the ethnicities and cultures and the immigrants, the people that are around us, as well as a passion for the nations that are far, who have not heard the word of God. Everyone is looking for truth. And Christ in his word is where we confess and believe that the truth has been found. And so we will be biblically faithful and we will be gospel-centered for the glory of God who has given us this wonderful privilege of participating as, his, as a family in his work. Let's pray.